Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we're giving you the tools to make a difference right now. Today, we talk about the upcoming efforts to make sure this time is different when it comes to protecting our communities and our children from mass shootings. Plus, primary season is well underway. We've got some updates and an interesting observation. And Mariah tells us why you should be the change we seek. That's right. Plus, we're going to do a deep dive into criminal justice reform with Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. He talks about how he's modernizing criminal justice through data and science and how we can support his important work. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How We Win. Steve, I wasn't able to participate in the interview with uh, George Gascon, but I, mm-hmm. I'm so excited to listen to it. You must have had just such a fascinating conversation with him. It was fascinating. He is brilliant and so inspiring and gives me a lot of hope. Um, he was elected uh, in the wake of the protests over George Floyd's murder and right. uh, and the calls, national calls for reimagining police and reimagining criminal justice reform. It's so necessary. Um, I want to read this from Brennan Center for Justice because it says it better than I could say it. The United States criminal justice system is broken. We have less than 5% of the world's population, but nearly 25% of its prisoners. Mass incarceration has crushing consequences racial, social, and economic. It reinforces systemic patterns of racial inequality across our society and vastly unequal treatment at each and every step. And it is not necessary to keep our communities safe. If we are to make clear as a society that Black Lives Matter, there must be a new relationship between police and the communities they are charged with serving and protecting. We must reimagine the justice system. And and this is exactly what George Gascon is doing. Uh, he's been trying to find a way to eliminate cash bail systems for defendants who have not yet gone to trial, um, which uh, – and he has in many cases. Also something that, that our governor has been doing and our legislature has been doing. Um, there are so many people who are incarcerated and, and, and holding for crimes that they may not have even done, but – they don't have the resources to pay the cash bail, so, they, um, so they're imprisoned. Um, this is really important. Uh, he's been really proactive about rooting out corruption and racism within the police departments and, um, of course, has drawn a lot of ire um, within his own uh, office and within the police department for, for that because they don't like transparency. They don't like being looked at or held accountable. Uh, One of those things, he wants to end qualified immunity, which basically allows officers to operate with impunity and and not face Mm -hmm. the consequences of their actions. Um, He's done a lot of great stuff, and he goes into great detail about it. So I don't want to spoil too much about it now, but I encourage everyone to um, pull up a chair or go on a nice walk or do some laundry or whatever you do while you're listening to this podcast um, and and dig in with us because it's really important. Yeah, I think even for people outside of Los Angeles County, um, 
are, are watching what he's doing and also watching the, the pushback that he's been getting for it. I yeah. think it's going to be really instructive for, for communities uh, across the country. So, you know, whether you're, you're in California or outside, I think this is, this is going to be a, an informative interview. Absolutely. Can't wait for everyone to hear that. Let's talk about the top news of the week. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we can't not think about, I, I'm sure like many people, I think about this each and every day, what mm -hmm. happened in, in Uvalde. I think that the news, as we're learning more about what happened um, and, and maybe learning about what appears to be some obfuscation is like the mm -hmm. most polite thing that I can say about it, it, understanding as all of this was unfolding, um, what, uh, how chaotic this was, um, but it's starting to look like we may have been misled about what happened right after the, the school shooting in Uvalde. But, uh, you know, the most important thing um, is information about the, the children, the teachers, the families that were affected. I, I think it's so important that we continue to, to say their names and, and lift them up because that's what it's going to take to get people to not accept this and, and say change is possible. And I think, you know, Chris Murphy, I believe, said this week that maybe the change that we want immediately might not happen right away, but there are some things that we can do to kind of start the, the drip, drip, drip to um, protect people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I did talk with George Gascon a bit about it because he had mm -hmm. made some statements about some changes that we could make on the federal level in the wake of the Buffalo and the Fullerton mm -hmm. shooting. This was right before Uvalde. And uh, when we talk about criminal justice reform uh, and we look at the response, uh, the the police response to the shooting as well and how long it took and the revelations that we're having, as you said, being misled about uh, how that went down. It also goes right hand in hand with this broader conversation about policing. Um, there's been a lot of people coming from that community who have talked about the role of police in that community and um, a largely uh, Hispanic community and uh, how the police have not in their minds been there to serve and protect them but have been mm -hmm. you know uh, harassing them there was a former prosecutor who came out of there and said if you think that the police are uh, in Uvalde are being uh, forthcoming then you've never worked with them before um, wow there's a lot that needs to be understood about what happened the Justice Department has said that they are investigating it and as you said um, we're we're seeing uh, Hopefully some bipartisan work on uh, at least red flag laws being passed, you know, what, what's favored by, once again, 90% of Americans um, favor uh, some gun restrictions. It, sh it should be harder to get a, a, a gun than it is baby formula for sure. And um, mm. uh, Thursday, the House is likely to vote on uh, the Protecting Our Kids Act which is probably has too much good stuff in there for it to pass the Senate, but um, we'll see how that goes. And, of course, Canada 
just trying yeah. to pull pull Melinda and myself up to Vancouver. You know, they, <laughs> they just they just keep saying, "Come, come to us." You know, <laughs> they uh, they have implemented a national freeze on handguns. No new transfers, purchases uh, of handguns in Canada. And uh, I'm not going anywhere, Mariah. We've got work to do right here in our country, right. and I'm determined. We are the persistence. But oh, Canada, stop teasing me. Stop trying to get us to move. Maybe, maybe if our ship comes in, like just a little second home in Vancouver or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a little, a little escape. Um, yeah, I mean, Canada is is doing, and so many countries around the world have. It, it, uh, there have been mass shooting events in other countries. I think that's an important point. But what's different is that their governments respond right. to those shootings and then they don't happen again or don't happen again for a very long time. Whereas, you know, here it's like every few days there is a there is a mass there there are, have been more mass shootings than there are days in the year so far here in the United States and I, I don't I don't ever see the United States being able to implement any sort of freeze on handguns I think that the but I I do believe and I know I said a few minutes ago like oh we're aiming for the drip 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 right now it's so annoying um, <laughs> I do think that we could get away with um, a ban on military style and assault weapons, which we had in the past. And, right. and gun violence went down in correlation to that. Three so, times as, yeah. So what Canada's doing is probably not doable here and with the type of, of culture that we have, but there is something that's possible that I think many, many people would agree with. Yeah, and I want to read uh, what Shannon Watts, who, uh, of course, is the founder of Moms Demand Action and um, uh, did our show last year, and mm -hmm. she's just a wonderful person, wonderful activist, and you all know her. Um, she tweeted yesterday, um, I want to read this, in case you're wondering how long until the next mass school shooting, a fifth grade student in Florida who threatened a mass shooting in a text message was arrested on Saturday. A 29-year-old Massachusetts man is in custody after he made a threat to commit a school shooting via social media. A Long Island 16-year-old has been arrested for threatening to carry out a massive shooting at his high school. Detectives arrested an 18-year-old Florida man after receiving a tip that he threatened a mass shooting at a school in a social media post. Ten violent threats were reported in Maine schools over the last 30 days, with four of them occurring within the last week. A 16-year-old Queens student was arrested for threatening to shoot up his school. Police in Texas have arrested four teenagers for allegedly plotting to carry out another school massacre just days after the deadly mass shooting in Uvalde. A 14-year-old arrested for making violent threats against Boulder schools, including a shooting at a middle school. Fremont, California, police arrested a 17-year-old boy Wednesday for allegedly making threats on social media about shooting a school employee and potentially other people at a school. Um, this is just, you know, within the last week. Mm, it's terrifying. So there is a lot of action around this. We, I'm going to tease my reason for hope is actually David 
Hogg and and the work that he's doing and what and the hope that he's spreading on Twitter. Um, one of our actions uh, is going to be to support the March for Our Lives event on June 11th, which is a week from Saturday. So I'm spoiling our our to do list already, but um, this cannot stand. We we will we will persist and um, and hopefully we can see some some actual change around this. Um, one way to do that is, I mean, we've been kind of beating the primary vote. drum for, <laughs> yeah, for, for months now, obviously is to vote in upcoming primaries. We had, uh, a couple last week that we didn't really get a chance to talk about, but I think the, the, you know, the top line news from those was Georgia. We're going to be keeping our eye on Georgia, a lot happening there, mm-hmm. um, including the fact that. Donald Trump's pick for for governor burned out. Yeah. As as he should have. Badly. Um badly. And our fave Stacey Abrams moved forward so she's going to be taking on um Kemp so rematch. Put, it's a rematch. Put, <laughs> if you got any extra to give, send it. <laughs> if you got doors that you want to knock, I I I'm I'm going to be getting down to uh, the Atlanta area this fall, knocking doors for Stacy. So I hope to see some of y'all down there. Um, let's do it. I'm with you. Uh, I want to go. Let's do it. Um, and then um, coming up next, so we're in a little bit of a break this week, and then coming up next week, the big primary, of course, is California. A lot going on there. And then we have Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota. Um, So, And we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, who's our Senate candidate now, who I think is is a really interesting and exciting uh, candidate for Senate there. And um, that is a seat we absolutely can need to and will take um, to help us. um, Like, look, let's not make any bones about this. We have an opportunity. We really do. Like the mainstream media wants to talk about gloom and doom. The mainstream media wants to talk about historical precedent, which is, you know, uh, we are in unprecedented times and, and how difficult it is for Democrats to win in the midterms. The truth is, Yes, it's going to be a challenge and it's going to be a challenge to hold on to the House. We, we can definitely do that and we can expand our gains in the Senate and make cinema and mansion less relevant. And if we do that, if we can gain a couple more seats there, then we can eliminate the filibuster and actually pass this legislation, all of this great legislation that's been coming out of the House. And then we'll just stand on our record and then people can judge Democrats for the legislation that we actually pass and how that helps the American people and what that does. We're just getting started. We've been handcuffed by this Senate and um, and we have an opportunity to do it. So anyway, that's my diatribe. You all know that. You don't need me to yell at you and tell you that. But John Fetterman uh, deserves our support too because he's going to have some unique crossover appeal. You know, he's uh, – uh, just a different kind of Senate candidate, and I think is perfect for uh, for the voters in Pennsylvania too. Yeah, that's a, an exciting one to get involved with as well. Um, I just also wanted to flag that we're deep into primary season, and and this election fraud that the GOP was all up in arms about 
a, 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 a last cycle. Mm -hmm. like, I, haven't, I haven't heard them. That where's the concern about the voting machines that were malfunctioning in 2020 or were being hacked or whatever they were, whatever nonsense they were claiming, not a peep. Yeah. I think, I think honestly, I mean, uh, you're being tongue in cheek about that because obviously we all know there is no election fraud. The Republicans obviously. know there's no election fraud. They know. They're um, fully aware. They're fully aware of that. Um, but what they also thought was that, uh, you know, beating the drum of election fraud would be a galvanizing issue for their base. What they are finding and what we know from all of our studies about social science and voting behaviors and what motivates voters is they are actually repressing their own voters because they are telling their voters that their vote doesn't matter because it's all rigged. And they are making their own voters stay home as a result of that. And mm. um, I hope they don't get wise to that because um, they're going to do that glorious disservice to themselves in uh, November if they keep beating that drum. But uh, I think they're starting to see the results of that with some of these candidates who um, who are really running on this uh, you know, insurrectionist platform and are getting defeated badly. Yeah. I mean, it would kind of explain a little bit how Herschel Walker mm. won in Georgia. I don't know what's going on there. I'm very nervous. He's a popular figure. So it, it, he, he makes me nervous, too, because he's terribly unqualified to be a senator. Oh, like um, maybe even to function in society. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's. He can barely put sentences together that make sense, but for a lot of voters who, let's be honest, you know, are very low information voters who don't who uh, and I don't blame them for it. I really don't. You know, a huge swath of our citizens are working their asses off. You know, they're barely getting by if they're getting by. They work all day. They're exhausted at night. They come home and they're with their family and they just don't tune in to politics. It's why voter outreach is so important. It's why knocking yeah. on doors and making phone calls is so important because they're not on Twitter and they're not watching the news and they're not, you know, hearing, you know, pundits talk about, you know, different issues. Uh, but yeah, we need to we need to help them out and, and let them know about Reverend Warnock. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because they might because they might be thing. football fans and they might just be like, oh, I love Herschel Walker. He was cool, you know, yeah. and that's enough. And it might be enough. So that's the scary thing. Anyway, speaking of running, and uh, we teased it out in our intro about being the change. Um, Mariah, you, I didn't even know, I didn't even know that you were doing this until like last week. And that's shameful that we didn't get to talk about this more on the show. But tell our listeners what you sneakily did and, and what your experience was like and what they should take from it. Yeah, so I uh, decided to run for precinct chair in my community. And because I was in a, a contested race, I ended up on the ballot um, here in Texas in the runoff last week. And it was like the first the first time I'd ever been on a ballot, first time I'd ever run for anything. Amazing. And it was 
it was pretty cool. So I just um, uh, wanted to just share a little bit about that in the hopes that somebody listening would also run for something like that's the that's the end goal of this piece of the conversation. But so, like I said, I ran for precinct chair. A precinct is the like the smallest level of when you look at it like a county party organization. It's the the micro level. It's the neighborhood mm-hmm. level. Um, and precinct chairs help get out the vote and recruit and organize volunteers in their communities. And um, they're on the the county executive committee. So I saw that the position was open in my precinct and I filed the paperwork to run. And because of redistricting, I ended up running against somebody who had done it in the past, which was super intimidating (laughs) because this is somebody who's done this for a long time. And but but it also requires skills that I have. And so I knew that I could do the job really well. And so it was just an amazing way to like get to know my community and neighbors better. I'm so grateful. There were so many people who saw that I was running and reached out to me and offered me encouragement and support and talked to me about what they wanted to see in the community and got to know me a little bit and introduced me to their neighbors. and. That, that was just a, an amazing way. You know, I moved to this community during the the kind of the height of the pandemic. And right. so um, kind of getting to know it and getting to know people is required a lot. And fortunately, people here are extremely friendly. So anyway, I put together a little website. I had the local union print shop do some postcards for me. I knocked on doors. I phone banked. Neighbors introduced me to their neighbors. One of my neighbors phone banked for me and just kind of like dove right in and ended up um, winning unofficially, unofficially, but it looks like it looks like I it looks like I won um, by like a pretty decent number. Um, And I just want to say, like, there were times when the whole process intimidated me or when I felt like so tired and busy that I like I was like, oh, maybe maybe I shouldn't do this. I'm I'm too tired for this. <laughs> um, but I would go to meetings and I would be the only person there who looked like me mm. or I'd be on a like a training Zoom. And I'm the only person on the Zoom with like a toddler running around in the background and sitting on my lap. And I would say, hey, people like me need to be a part of this conversation at all levels at the micro and macro level as democrats we talk about having representation as though it's a nice box to check Um, but it's so much more than that it means bringing perspective and life experience and unique knowledge to the table and if somebody can raise an alarm because their unique life experience has let them know that there's something wrong, it can help others. And the other thing I wanted to flag for people is that like, I had to pay for childcare while I was doing this. Mm. Um, When I was knocking on doors in the hundred degree weather, like I had to pay somebody to, to babysit my child. When I was making phone calls, I had to hire somebody to be with my child while I did that. And my mom always told me like, you know, the the time when your child needs you the most is when you're on the phone. And so 
whenever <laughs> I would start phone banking during like Jackson's dinner or when he was like, I would put him in front of something to, to watch. Mm -hmm. He would, I would make a phone call and he'd be in the background, like hollering at me because, you know, my attention was on something else. So anyway, I just want to make people aware that um, at the federal level, the FEC allows parents who run for office to um, get reimbursed for childcare. And what this has meant is that we have many more women um, and parents in Congress now um, because of this. And uh, the amazing Katie Porter uh, representative in Orange County mm -hmm. has suggested that that be expanded for elder care and, and other um, needed family care as well. And I totally agree with that because um, we, we, need, we need people who are caring for, uh, who care for other people to run for office. Yeah. Um, so anyway, thanks for letting me ramble. My bottom line, whether you have kids or parents that you're taking care of or not, run. Um, if you look around and think that something in your community could be improved, if you look around and you, you wonder if the people speaking for you understand you and your life, run. If you're a renter or single or a parent or queer or disabled or whatever, if you're a good person, we need you to run. Um, and if you're a woman, then I am asking you twice because it takes us, I think what's, what's the conventionalism. We have to be asked six times before we, right. we even start to consider this. So anyway, um, I hope this is as helpful and I hope that people consider running. And it, like I said, it doesn't have to be for Congress. It can be for a volunteer position like precinct chair where you can connect with your neighbors and feel a little bit better that you're getting people out to vote. Yeah. Well, congratulations and major kudos to you. Um, the Democratic Party in Texas is much stronger having you in that position. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm grateful that you decided to do that as I'm like, uh, you know, musing about moving to Canada, you're you're stepping up in your community in Texas, which has been ground zero for some really hateful legislation to be on the front lines fighting against that alongside the Democratic Party. And, and that's uh, incredibly brave and difficult work as a mom. And um, just to reinforce what you said, this is a volunteer position that you ran for. And a lot of these uh, positions, precinct chairs, delegates and stuff like that, and depending on, on what state you're in, uh, it costs money to do it, you know. And um, the, uh, the barrier for entry to a lot of people who need to be represented and need to take leadership in the party too is difficult. It's, it's not – it's not there. It's not feasible for a lot of people who would maybe like to serve in those positions to run because of what mm. you said. You have to pay for child care. In many cases, you you know, you're paying for the supplies to run. You're paying, right. you know, uh, party dues. You have to pay to go to the convention right. and the right. executive board meetings and all that. And, you know, most of the uh, party apparatus ha makes accommodations for people who you know, cannot afford that. And that's important for people to know, too, um, that uh, Democrats want to make it more accessible for all, all kinds of people to run and be part of the Democratic Party. But um, uh, thank you for, for thank you so much for pointing that out. And I will say when I was when I used to run events and conferences and things like that in, in California, 
people would reach out to me all the time and say, I want to participate. I want this training, but I can't afford it. I would never turn anyone away right. because they couldn't pay. So maybe it sounds like I'm being flippant. Ask because you never know because, because people really do want you doing this work and participating. So if we you want if, you and we need you, we need you we to need do you. this work. So if, if cost is a barrier, please ask. Yeah. So congratulations. And I'm still just like, I'm happy for you. And also super mad that you, I didn't know about this until last week. Like, you said if you, if you lived next door, I would have been knocking <laughs> on your door asking for your vote. We've got a lot of listeners who are your neighbors. You didn't utilize this platform to promote <laughs> yourself, which is what makes you so great because your work here is obviously to get other people into action and to motivate them and not to promote yourself. And, and so many podcasts hosts, I think, um, want to be a podcast host and, and get into it to promote themselves. And that's not what you do. So I get it. And that you're a humble, amazing person. And I'm grateful to know you, but still. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, I'm blushing so hard. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> on to the next thing. Well, let's, let's just, uh, and honestly, you were going to be my hero of the week. Uh, I was going to plug that in there, but, um, uh, mm. Today no. is the first day of Pride Month, so um, so let's talk about this week's Hero of the Week. So the Hero of the Week that I picked is uh, Xander Moritz, who uh, you may have seen his viral video. Uh, yeah. He was the first openly gay student body president at Pine View School in Osprey, Florida. And when he stepped to the microphone at the school's graduation on Sunday, he was determined to speak truthfully about his experiences one way or another. Earlier in May, he was the youngest public plaintiff in the lawsuit over Florida's Don't Say Gay Law. Um, and he tweeted that his school's principal had called him into his office to tell him that his microphone would be cut off at graduation if he refer referenced his activism in his speech. Wow. Uh, this is what he wrote on Twitter. I am the first openly gay class president in my school's history. This censorship seems to show that they want me to be the last. Mm. This threat is not the first that I have received from the administration about my queer rights. He, and he also was uh, threatened when he helped organize a student walkout of the prote uh, to protest the passage of the law. And uh, students walked out anyway. So what he did during his commencement speech, which was absolutely brilliant, and I encourage people to take a little dive uh, on this on this young man. Um, too, he did a bunch of interviews. He's so smart, and yeah, he's and he's really great, and he's he's going to be a, a huge asset to um, activism and whatever he does. He's gonna he's gonna end up doing great stuff, but. He never said gay during his commencement speech, but instead referred to his curly hair as a euphemism. And, uh, and let's listen to a little bit of his speech right now. I have curly hair. I used to hate my girls. I spent mornings and nights embarrassed of them, trying desperately to straighten this part of who I am but the daily damage of trying to fix myself became too much to endure. 
So while having curly hair in Florida is difficult due to the humidity, I decided to be proud of who I was and started coming to school as my authentic self. Well, uh, congratulations to him. I'm horrified that he couldn't say what he wanted to say, but he made his message very clear. And I gosh, so much pride and hopefulness um, for this person. So Xander, thank, thank you. And you are our hero of the week this week. Now let's talk about this week's to-do list. Thank you so much to everyone who uh, has participated in our fundraiser. It's so much fun to see the numbers sort of like tick up and see all the people from all over the country who are contributing to the How We Win Fund that's being promoted um, here and among all uh, so many other podcasts that are part of the MSW Media Network. It's so incredibly inspiring and gives me hope. Um, keep spreading the word. If you haven't had a chance to donate yet, go to swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win. 100% of that money goes directly to candidates that need it the most. These are priority races across the Senate campaigns, congressional campaigns, gubernatorial races, and um, and even some local legislatures. But um, they are places where uh, like bang for the buck is is the most important, and uh, and takes a guesswork over like where should I donate money. Um, and it changes depending on the needs too and what happens like with the primaries, for instance. Uh, so once again, that's swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win and donate what you can and share this with your friends too. That's right. And um, the other item on this week's to-do list, I think everybody is probably very much aware that there are going to be another round of mass demonstrations on June 11th, led by March for Our Lives. Uh, you can go to marchforourlives.com and find the closest demonstration to you. Um, we've done this before. Let's make sure that we get out into the streets and support the young people that are leading um, this march. I went on a little bit of a diatribe last week <laughs> um, about the the need for young people to be doing this for themselves. But, um, you know, if, if this is what they're doing, I'm going to follow them. So um, I'm going to be looking for one as close to home as, as I can find. That's right. And David Hogg on Twitter just recently said, we need more um, moms and dads of kids to show up for this march. So I hear you and I am there. We are going to be there and, and uh, we all need to show up and make our voices heard. Next up, we have Steve's interview with Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. And then we'll be back with our reasons for hope. George Gascon is the district attorney of Los Angeles. He previously served as the district attorney of San Francisco from 2011 to 2019. Prior to his work as a prosecutor, he was an assistant chief of police for the Los Angeles Police Department and chief of police in Mesa, Arizona and San Francisco. District Attorney Gascon, thank you so much for being here. 
My pleasure, Steve. How are you? I'm I'm doing okay. I think we're all uh, just getting by right now. And there's a lot that I want to get into about your work. But as we're all reeling from another massacre at Robb Elementary School, I want to start with talking about gun violence. Um, in the wake of back-to-back shootings in Uvalde, Buffalo, Milwaukee, and Laguna Woods, you, in fact, outlined some steps that leaders nationwide uh, could adopt to prevent mass shootings. So how do we stop this utter insanity? Well, you know, Steve, I generally I'm a very optimistic person. Um, but unfortunately, so long as we continue to have, um, you know, 50 members of Congress that are Republicans and a couple of reluctant uh, Democrats uh, to do what's right, I think we're going to continue to have these problems, right? Um, I was, you know, just reading this morning, uh, the New York Times actually went through all 50 Republicans and uh, and the Senate and and some of the response, and not all of them responded, uh, but some of the ones that did, it's just so concerning. Uh, when you hear people write out lying, because it's really, you know, no other way to put it, to, to continue this this fiction that the problem are not the guns, right? That the problem right. is other things, right? We as Democrats also have to make sure that we put people in place that are going to have the backbone to do the things that we need to do. You know, the, the, the concept of the filibuster is continues to hurt democracy in this country. And you can go all the way, you know, back to slavery, right? The impact of that. I understand. I hear some people say, well, what happens if you have then a Republican majority and, and there is no filibuster? Uh, I, I understand that, but you know, it, it's not democratic at all to have a, a minority of people just basically block uh, the ability to, to pass uh, legislation and, and hopefully pass good legislation. I just think that the lack of leadership and the uh, how deeply embedded gun lobby money runs politics and is in the politics of this country, I think is until we have people that have the courage to stand up, I'm fearful that we'll, we'll continue to have the discussions. Yeah. You know, I hate it when people offer prayers, you know, because I, I think it's so hypocritical anymore to offer prayers when especially those that can do something about it and not, are not doing it. Right. Yeah. Uh, some of the some of the stuff I've heard from Republican senators, including senators from Texas um, in the last few days as we're recording this are just jaw dropping, of course, staying far away from mentioning guns at all. Senator Cruz actually uh, saying the problem was too many doors in schools and that there should only be one doorway uh, and that, yeah. would, that would prevent that. Well, I mean, I tell you, I, uh, this morning I was an NPR, I was listening to our interview on a, a state senator, uh, not a federal senator, not a U.S. senator, but a state senator from Texas. And, and you know, he's going on about we need more security around the schools and we right. need to have, you know, bigger fences. And I'm saying is that really what the answer is? Uh, do we need to live in a prison? Uh, <laughs> well, it's just insane. Well, you did uh, outline some 
answers. You know, let's let's say we do the job that uh, we must do in the midterms and uh, and add a couple of Democratic senators and uh, and actually uh, abolish the filibuster. There's been some great legislation that has passed through the House of Representatives that, as you pointed out, has not uh, been able to overcome the filibuster in the Senate. So what would you like to see happen uh, to curb these these slaughters yeah, okay. of our children? Yeah. And, you know, look, I, I, some people will probably say that I'm being um, too modest, but, you know, I try to be a political realist as well. Right. So mm-hmm. the, the things that I mentioned are really very low threshold common sense steps that we can take to reduce the impact of gun violence in our country by no means is the ideal world. The ideal world would be to have less guns, but I'm going to park that aside because I recognize that, you know, we as a nation have a, a culture of gun ownership. So, you know, the things that I'm, I'm suggesting, which by the way, there, uh, you know, many others have talked about this. I, I just would love to see a package, you know, number one is universal backgrounds, which is, by the way, it's hugely popular. Ninety percent approval. With seventy yeah, percent with with Republicans. Yeah, um, you know, red flag legislation, right? Uh, somebody's coming in to purchase a weapon. Uh, if they're, you know, people of whether the people in the retail stores or a family or a neighbor, anybody that sees something unusual going on, you know, just just raising the flags and having a a vehicle by which there's immediately reporting and there's, you know, law enforcement intervention. I believe that um, a cooling off period is critical. You should not be able to walk into a gun store and walk away with a gun the same moment that you were there. I think that, you know, having a couple of weeks to, so if you're going there in a moment of anger, um, you know, just having a cooling off period, you know, I mean, look, uh, we don't have a higher rate of people with mental health in this right. country than others. We don't get angrier than other parts of the world. You know, we're not inherently more violent. But what we have that other countries have been able to figure out is, you know, we, we have the ability when, when you're angry, when you kind of lost it, to go grab a gun more easily than anywhere else. So I would say that, you know, a cooling off period, I think, is, is really uh, an, an important component. I think that, you know, we should absolutely have a ban against military-style weapons. And, you know, assault weapons in general, but, you know, I think that we need to be even a little more. There are certain weapons that were designed for for the theater of war, for military application. So let, let me you ask know, you. Let me ask you weapons. about the military style weapons too, because you served in the military, and you were also started your career in law enforcement as a beat cop. Right. Um, what What does it mean to uh, police officers who are working the beat to have military grade weapons in the hands of normal citizens? Look, I, I think that makes the work inherently more dangerous. You know, the the more guns that are out there the more difficult it is for police officers to do their work, you know? Um, And and we see it, by the way. We see in this states where gun regulations are very loose and there's a lot of gun ownership, more cops get killed in the line of duty, right? Uh, That's not often talked about, but the reality is that, that, you know, gun violence in in those places where, where there are 
guns are more freely available, is substantially higher per capita than it is in places that have more restrictions. I mean, we often see the national news, you hear Fox talking about LA, New York, Chicago for the violence, but when you actually look at the per capita rate of violence, uh, violence is much higher, uh, especially gun violence in, in, in farming communities. And a lot of the South places where, you know, gun ownership is, is very, uh, very loosely controlled or not mm. controlled at all, right? So, uh, and the work for police officers is much more difficult. I mean, look, one of the nightmares for any patrol cop is when you're approaching a car on a stop and you're, you're hoping that you're not going to find a gun on the other end, Right. Well, the more guns that are out there, the more likelihood it is that you're going to make a stop and the other person's going to be armed. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a chief of police in Mesa, Arizona for three years mm-hmm. when I left LAPD and before I went to San Francisco. And, and I was in shock, you know, that number one, you could open carry, right? So anybody could, I mean, unless you were a prohibited possessor, and that's really a very small population, you know, felons. Uh, you know, some people that had convictions of domestic violence. I mean, generally speaking, really a small number of people that could not only have weapon, a gun lawfully, but and if you open carry it, almost anybody could. And, you know, and the officers would tell you, you know, almost every stop that I'm going to make, I expect that there will be a gun on the other side. Right. That makes the work much more difficult, you know. So for police officers, uh, although, you know, often many police officers are very, pro-Second Amendment, but the reality is the work is actually much more dangerous when so many other people have guns. Well, um, certainly uh, those are, those are like you said, solutions that uh, 90% of the country yeah. is in favor of, um, and we are being held hostage by this minority, so we have our work to do to, to expand the Senate. I want to switch gears now uh, a little bit. Last week on the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder, uh, President Biden signed an executive order that creates a national registry of officers fired for misconduct, encourages state and local police to tighten restrictions on chokeholds and no-knock warrants. It also restricts the transfer of military equipment to law enforcement agencies and mandates that all federal agents wear activated body cameras. You've applauded these moves. Uh, what else do you think needs to be done on a federal and state level? Well, look, I think that those are great first steps. And I put it kind of on the same level with the, the sort of the gun regulations that I'm advocating and others, right? They're, they're modest steps moving forward. Uh, I think there are some other really good pieces about this executive order, um, you know, the, the creating better screening components, you know, to make sure that people that are, you know, that are hired by law enforcement agencies have to meet the certain minimum requirement, you know, because we have nearly 17,000 police agencies in this country, uh, you know, the standards of, of hiring people are, are very different. Right. And, and we know that invariably we're much like we're having problems in the military. We hire people into policing often that are unfit to be a police officer. And it really, Again, this is one of the things, much like with guns, for good police officers to do their job well, when you have people that are dishonoring the, the profession, it's actually making the work more difficult for good police officers. So I think that that is a, a good piece. But I think, you know, we, we need to get to a place where, you know, like, for instance, qualified immunity 
uh, needs to be removed. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, by the way, again, this is, it's not, you know, it's not going to impact the, the, the average police officer doing their jobs well every day. But what happens is that we create these shields, right, that, that create a, a protection for, you know, unlawful policing that allows, uh, you know, basically people often to escape not only criminal sanctions, but they're also in the case of qualified immunity to even escape you know, civil sanctions, right? Monetary sanctions, which will never bring a, a, a person that was murdered alive, but, but it will certainly create bumpers around liability that then force behavior within police agencies. You know, I, I often tell people if municipalities and counties would actually force police departments from their general fund budget to pay for liability for lawsuits, uses of force and bad traffic accidents will go down. The problem is that most municipalities don't do that, right? You have your regular fund, you know, your, your budget for the police department, and then there is a municipal liability budget somewhere that pays for all the lawsuits, not only the police departments, obviously other other, other departments within the, the entity, but, but I think that what that creates is creates an incentive for police managers not to manage uh, risk well in their organization because there is no need for them to do so. Right. I hate to say it, but, you know, in, in a society like ours where, you know, money, you know, influences behavior, uh, having police departments who actually budget themselves around liability, I think that would be actually uh, a bigger, would have a larger impact in, in how you train and how you manage and supervise police officers and their behavior than probably most regulations that, that we can come up with. So that would be another another area that I think that uh, it would be at some point, it, it should be in consideration. You know, you have so many cities that actually almost go bankrupt. Well, in fact, some have gone bankrupt, mm -hmm. right? Because of lawsuits related to police malpractice. But generally the police actual budget hasn't been impacted by this. It's just the general fund that crumbles, right? Right, interesting. Well, um... You were elected LA's DA, uh, of course, in the wake of George Floyd's murder uh, and nationwide calls for reimagining policing and criminal justice. Uh, and you've been implementing a lot of changes here in Los Angeles. On your first day in office, you ended the use of the death penalty as a sentence in Los Angeles County, stopped charging children as adults, uh, eliminated many sentencing enhancements and removed cash bail for misdemeanor or non-serious or non-violent felony offenses. Uh, why were those particular changes so important to make on day one? Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, I, you know, every one of those policies is based on, you know, years of research and data, none, none of the stuff just, you know, I, I didn't pull the stuff out of thin air. And then right. we, we actually had community groups that help us, you know, work on those things. But let's take, you know, let, let's begin with death penalty, right? For, for those that may not be familiar with it. The reality is that there are multiple things that we know about the death penalty and why it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to put aside the morality of it. Let's say that, uh, you know, for me, it's an immoral practice. But let's say that some people say, well, look, I'm ambiguous about it. Or I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not sure that it is, you know, maybe an eye for an eye. But if you want to look at it strictly as a 
as a deterrent of crime or as a, as a tool that makes social and economic sense. It doesn't. And here's why. Number one is it's horribly expensive, right? So when you are engaging in the use of the death penalty, and it really doesn't matter what jurisdiction you're, even in those what I call death-happy jurisdictions, the cost of litigating and the cost of incarcerating and, and, and executing people multiplies many folds over the cost of even having a, a life without the possibility of parole or, or any other, uh, you know, significant incarceration period. And obviously, we're talking about the most heinous crimes, so yeah, murder. Uh, so economically, it doesn't make any sense. Then you look at it, does it, does it impact safety at all? And, 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 you know, the reality is that it doesn't for many reasons. Number one, deterrent in order to work has to be certain. There has to be a high level of certainty. There has to be a certain swiftness to it. Um, and the reality is the death penalty is either, right? Number one, people are not thinking, okay, if I do A, I'm going to have the consequence of B, which is death penalty. That's not right. how we, how our brain functions. Uh, and certainly, you know, we know that we, you know, we solve very few crimes, even homicides, we solve maybe 50% nationally. So we know that it's not, there's no certainty to it. But what we do know on the other end, again, it really costs us a lot of money. But then, you know, for me, one of the major reasons why is cannot be on the table is it's so racially unjust. Right. right? You take L.A. County, for instance, most people around the country say, well, you know, L.A. County, California, very liberal, you know, progressive. Well, listen, before I came into office, my predecessor actually put 23 people in death road in a period of about eight years. In fact, she put more people on death road than places like Alabama yeah. and Tennessee during that period of time. And out of those 23, 22 were, were men of color, right? Most of them, by the way, African-Americans. So, in my opinion, this proportionality of the application of the death penalty, which, by the way, LA is not unique. You could go anywhere in the country. Most of the people on death row are going to be African Americans, disproportionately Latinos, you know, poor people. By the way, about 50% of the people on death row are, are, you know, certifiably have mental health problems, mm -hmm. right? So, you're taking poor people, people of color, and people that have mental health issues, and you're applying this, what I would call this, you know, outdated mode of, of sanctioning uh, human behavior in a way that is racially, on the best case scenario, you can say racially biased. I would say it's racist on this application, mm -hmm. right? So for me, that by itself makes it a deal breaker. So we know that it's expensive. We know that it doesn't deter we know that it's racism on this application. You know, I don't think I need anything else to say that the death penalty needs to be, you know, done away with. When we're talking about putting kids in, pre in adult prisons, again, we're talking this, the science and all the data that we have today clearly indicates that the human brain is not fully developed until we're somewhere in our mid-20s. Right. The behavior that I we I know this because I have a 19-year-old daughter. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you know, everyone that's had kids, you know. We, Thank goodness she doesn't listen to this show, so uh, <laughs> I can say that safely. Well, you know, if we're talking about guys, we probably need to look at 40 years of age, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. But anyway, so, you know, taking a 16, a 17-year-old, um, which is clearly not fully developed, and the, the impulses and the way that they behave is going to 
you know, occasionally perhaps lead to, to really bad outcomes. And putting them in a in an adult setting, all we're doing is we're guaranteeing number one, they're gonna be victimized himself. You mm-hmm. know? But but uh, you know, some people say, Well, I don't care. They did something horrible, I don't care what happens to them. But what happens is they will get more criminalized in the process. 95% of the people that we put in jails and prisons come out at some point. You put an 18-year-old in prison, you send them, even if you send them to prison for 20 years, 15, you know, 25 years, they're going to come out still pretty strong. They're going to come out really angry many times. They're going to come out with, you know, extreme traumatization. And then since we don't spend any money on rehabilitation and reentry, they come back out often and they, and they are actually creating more safety problems and insecurities for all of us. And the other thing that we know is that unlike adult brains, the young mind can be reprogrammed fairly quickly with the right level of intervention. So mm. it just doesn't make any sense to treat kids as adults. And then a lot of the enhancements, which is one of the other components, when you look at their application, not only do they multiply sentencing, sometimes three, four, four, so insanity, but most of it gets applied against usually people of color, usually African-Americans, Latino, poor people. So again, when you look at the application of this very draconian uh, sentencing And just to be clear for our listeners about what sentencing enhancements are, that's when someone is arrested and then maybe they have a firearm with them that's illegal or there's another component to it that wasn't related to the crime that enhances the sentence. Is that correct? Or or maybe they had had a history of prior arrest or or maybe they were, um, you know, they were registered as a gang member, which, by the way, I know people say, well, wait a minute, is he or she registered as a gang member. The problem with all of that is that we know, and this has been established now, in fact, the Attorney General of the State of California has really put into question our entire gang files. We know the young people of color get placed in those gang files often um, for no other reason than who they are and where they live. Not, you know, so, so we often end up putting people in those files that have really no gang affiliation, hmm. uh, which really makes it more unjust. So, you know, the, the enhanced, so you may have a person that maybe commits a robbery or a burglary or a car theft, but by the time you add the enhancements, and I'm going to just do a hypothetical, you see the sentence may be double or triple. Somebody that might have gone to prison for three or five years, also are going to go into prison for 10 years, 12 years, right? And again, it, just a disconnection with the, the impact of deterring a crime or the disconnection with what makes us any safer. So for by and large, I, I believe that, you know, the enhancement, by the way, is a product of the last 30, 40 years in this country. You know, I, I, I have a, a, a lawyer that is a good friend of mine, and, and she was telling me one day, you know, her father was involved in a robbery, and there was a death as a result of the robbery, and he was not the actual person that actually caused the death, but he was involved in the crime. And in the early 70s, he was sentenced to, I believe it was seven years in prison, and mm-hmm. he, with good behavior, got on five, went on to become a productive member of society. This person was born, she became a lawyer. And she was telling me, I said, look, I mean, if my father would have been uh, committed the same crime 20 years later, 
um, he may still be in prison because, you know, he would have been, you know, the, the felony murder rule and some other rules that are now, you know, they're being watered down. But he could have gone to prison for 20, 30, 40 years. So we, we knew how to do this before and do it well. We just became an outlier. So that's an example of enhancements. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to misdemeanor offenses, especially those that are crimes of, I call it crimes of poverty or mm. your economic status, right? Like a houseless person perhaps pitching a tent in, on a sidewalk or in front of a business or something and, you know, arresting those people for a misdemeanor offense that they cycle in and out very quickly um, doesn't resolve anything. It just increases their criminalization or driving without a driver's license, which, you know, in our state actually is what we call a wobblet. You can either infract it, which is a civil sanction. You still got to deal with, you know, the fact that you should get a license. But when you do a misdemeanor prosecution, which in this office is about 60% of our misdemeanor prosecutions were driving without a license, wow. by the way. Most of them are uh, poor people. A lot of them are undocumented that even though you can get a license in California, if you're undocumented, Many people are fearful because they believe it's a database that could be used to be deported. But when you prosecute somebody for this low-level misdemeanor, like driving without a license, often people have to miss work. They, maybe they were arrested for a day or two. They lose their job. They become homeless. They're unable to pay the rent. So you create all kinds of other problems. So those are the kind of misdemeanor that we said, you know, we're, we're generally not going to prosecute those. If it's a misdemeanor or, you know, saying assault, uh, whether criminal threats or as a, a, a driving under the influence, mm -hmm. we still prosecute those cases. We try to be thoughtful about the intervention. We don't necessarily send people to jail for long periods of time, but we, we will prosecute those. It's those other cases that really have very little connection to public safety, but actually you're criminalizing people because they're poor, they're mentally ill, they don't have a home, or I shouldn't say not a home, they don't have a, a house. Right. You know, place, you know, and and those are the ones that we and again, the data supports this. You look, you know, in Boston, they, they did a study and, you know, they found out that actually prosecuting those level, low level offenses increased the likelihood of people then reoffending and committing more serious offenses. And they right. found that actually the best deterring actually was a, a police intervention, a police arrest and release may have more more impact uh, without causing you know, the criminal legal system, any more expenses or or creating the increase in criminalization. So those are the kind of things that, you know, from the beginning, I said, you know, we're, we're not going to be doing the things and this is why. Well, as you said just now with the Boston study and, and mentioned before, these policies aren't willy-nilly. Um, you, you come at them through data and science, and this has been your your life's work really modernizing the criminal justice system the los angeles da's office is the largest in the country and the work that you do has a tremendous influence on criminal justice and policing nationwide as a result of your policies that you were by the way overwhelmingly elected to implement um, you are facing a possible recall election as are other progressive da's across the country can you explain what the recall is about, who's behind the effort, and most important, how can we help support you? Yeah, so this is really, uh, by and large, is being driven by Republican mega, mega donors. In fact, uh, 
uh, someone just sent me a mailer that they received uh, in the mail yesterday, a signature gathering mailer, which is very, very expensive. Mm. And, you know, the people that are fond of a guy named uh, uh, Jeff Palmer, who is a billionaire uh, real estate developer that, you know, gave Donald Trump, you know, millions of dollars in the, his 2020 campaign. Uh, police unions that are very opposed to the reform efforts that were taken, especially, you know, uh, holding uh, officers that commit a criminal behavior, you know, criminal act accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also putting a lot of money in it. So it's really driven by very conservative, very right wing forces that, that, that want to continue the, the carceral system that, you know, we have been living in for the last 40 years. Uh, so that's kind of where the funding and sort of the propaganda is coming in uh, for. Uh, and, you know, they have sort of created this false narrative about this is anti-safety, which is, you know, kind of the same uh, fear-mongering tactics, frankly, that you can go back to the Nixon era, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Willie Horton, right? So this is sort of what is driving this campaign and, and it's being fueled by money of people that have, you know, interest. And so, for instance, in my case, we had a, a former elected DA here, Steve Cooley, Republican, actually owns a business that provides services to prisons and jails. Ah. Well, you know, so there's a, a money trail there. And then again, you have police. And that's sort of what's driving it. Um, what, you know, what can people do uh, to support me? Well, first of all, you know, if you're, if you live in LA County and people are asking you to sign the recall, please don't. Um, <laughs> right. You know, um, if you like the things that I'm doing, you know, educate your neighbors, tell others, why this is important that we do, why this actually will create more safety and, and, and more equity in the way that we do business. Um, if you're active in social media, participate. You know, people gather information through social media today. So if the message that I am providing is something that you agree with, either, you know, go on our website or, or you know, grab in information, put it out there, you know, communicate with your friends, with your neighbors. Uh, and then, you know, finally, if you're willing to get more, you know, more expansive about it, then, you know, certainly, uh, you know, reach out to, you know, stand with Gascon uh, group. And, you know, there's a lot of work that you can do as well there. That's great. Well, okay. So we have our marching orders and, um, and you, and you really have been very proactive uh, about keeping police accountable and in facing repercussions for bad actions. And, and, uh, and I, uh, speak for myself and many other people when I uh, say thank you for that and the work that you're doing. Uh, last question we ask all of our guests, what and <laughs> and this is a tricky one right now because it's a very dark and wrought time, but what gives you the most hope for the future right now? Look, I mean, the, the, where I get a lot of hope is that I see a lot of younger people uh, looking at the world very differently than my generation did. I, I see, for instance, uh, I see young people here uh, talking about, you know, their, their, regardless of what their sexual orientation is, talking, you know, being respectful of their friends that may be LGBTQ members. So I know there's tremendous amount of hate crimes against the LGBTQ community, but the, the, the other side of the coin is that, you know, we're seeing, especially in places like California and LA, we see young kids being able to express their sexuality at a very early age and not necessarily be, uh, be you know, uh, sort of segregated or, and I know, by the way, I know that I'm 
now regionally, obviously we know what's happening in Florida. So I, I, yeah. I'm not yeah. blind to those problems, but, but I think that there is something that is going on with a younger generation that they're much more accepting uh, of things that perhaps older generations. So that gives me hope. Uh, you know, frankly, uh, I see, uh, you know, President Biden and I, you know, I don't always agree with everything he's done or he says, but, you know, standing up and saying, you know, we're going to honor George Floyd by, by beginning this process of having a national national policies around police. That gives me hope. Um, I think that the, you know, uh, you see the darkness around the Supreme Court decision about Roe v. Wade, but then, you know, you see all these other forces that are coming together to say, you know, we're, we're going to do everything that we can to help women uh, in, in, in facilitate transportation and other things and bring mm-hmm. it to the place that we can provide health care for women in, in a thoughtful and, and intelligent way. And that gives me hope. So I certainly there is a darkness that that is there, uh, but there's this other side that I think uh, I'd like to also acknowledge and think about because it makes me feel better. <laughs> Yeah, that makes me feel better too. And and it's true in times of of deep inhumanity, you can always find some great examples of the best of humanity uh, as well. So, George Gascon, thank you so much for spending time and uh, and thanks again for everything you're doing for my city of of Los Angeles. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you. It has been one of our longer ones, I know. So I'm going to keep my reason for hope really short because I teased it out already. Um, it's David Hogg uh, and his Twitter feed. He, of course, is one of the founders of March for Our Lives. Um, he has been tweeting that this is really going to be different, that this time is going to uh, – we're going to see some change. And uh, and he's been privy to some insider conversations and a lot of meetings with legislatures and also uh, on the ground with grassroots activists and um, – uh, he is giving me a lot of hope, and uh, and as we said in our to-do list, we are all going to show up for him and for all the other kids and for our own kids, and for the sake of humanity, we're going to show up on June 11th and uh, and take to the streets once again and march for ours and for their lives. So David Hogg is giving me a lot of hope, and he's my reason for hope this week. Uh, his his words, and to be honest, were my reason for hope as well. This time will be different. This mm-hmm. time will be different. Mm-hmm. I say that to myself every day. This time will be different. Um, we can we can make that true. Uh, yeah. So remember, go to marchforourlives.com. You'll be able to find a march uh, near you on that website. It's happening June 11th. That's a week from Saturday. Um, also, be sure to visit swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win. Uh, how we win, how we protect children and families is by electing people that are going to make a difference, make a positive change. So just reinforcing our calls to action this week because they are so important. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when all of us get involved. 
We want to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or tweet to us at Steve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share us with your friends and family. Share the How We Win fun with them. Help us build this community of informed and active volunteers. We really appreciate you being here with us, and we will be back with more next Wednesday. Thanks, everybody. Bye.